0: Well, I missed being with you last Sunday. Our, our family was on vacation for just about two weeks, just a little shy of two weeks, and uh, we drove up to Nebraska to meet um, some of my wife's family. We, we, stay, we stayed at a state park outside of Omaha, uh, went into the Omaha Zoo for a day, and then drove on into Iowa, and my father-in-law is a farmer, and um, I wanted to show you just a couple pictures that I took. This was one, one shot of the old shed and kind of the old fuel tank there. I don't think any of it's really operational, but it's hard to tell because he's kind of an old-fashioned style farmer, so you'll see in this next picture this kind of a candidate of him talking to his, uh, to his cattle. He's a beef farmer, and, uh, and he makes it a point to kind of distinguish himself from uh, the agro-business farmer, and, and uh, he, I think for him, he really sees farming as a vocation, as a way of life, and uh, he's the sort of guy, he, he told me, he said, Glenn, I all these magazines are telling me how I need to be more progressive, and I have to intentionally be regressive. I don't want GPS tractors that work the fields for me. I want to drive them. Do they? I want to see it. I want to do it. So he's he's. There's a lot I've learned about uh, the pastoral parallels from the way that he farms. But it's a small town in Iowa, in Northwest Iowa, called Akron, Iowa. And he told me this week. He said, you know, Glenn, it takes me half a day to pay my bills. When I go into town, I said, What do you mean? You have a lot of bills? And he goes, No, it's because I go in, I bring the payment in in person, and I sit down for a cup of coffee with the guy, and we catch up, and we talk about how life is, and we we talk about um, what's going on in his family. And so there's this, there's so much personal relationship. He said, The guy that runs the hardware store, which also sells lots of other stuff, it's the fifth generation of the Dirks family. And so my father in law, Bill Michael, knows. Uh, Mr. Dirks, but he knew the Dirk before him and the Dirks before him. He, he's known all the Dirks. And, um, and, uh, and, and so, so when he goes in to pay his bill, it's not paying, writing a check to some stranger. It's talking to someone that he's known. And so he said, it takes me half a day to pay my bills because I'm talking to these people and catching up on life. And, and, uh, and he said, actually, it's sometimes the guys who just come in to run the farm and leave. Those are the guys that are always late on their payments. Those are the guys who kind of view um, this as another way to kind of get a loan, you know, to, to stretch the money out longer than it would be by delaying payment. And he said, but all the small town guys who actually have lived here and grown up here, whose families have known each other, they're always paying their bills on time. There's something about trust that makes a community work. There's something about trust that makes it possible uh, to not take advantage of one another. It makes it possible to say, I don't have to send you invoices or payment reminders because I know you're coming in. And when you come in, you're not only going to have your check, but you'll have, uh, uh, you know, we'll have a cup of coffee and we'll catch up. And so uh, when I heard this story, of course, it, it evoked all of my romanticized notions of small towns and farming communities. And I thought, this is so wonderful. But we were around them long enough to also hear other stories. And anyone who's grown up, in in small towns or even farming communities know that trust isn't always the operative value or virtue in such a community. There are also stories of of different individuals who struggled with alcoholism, who would lock their children in the car so that they could go to the bars at night, uh, who would have to have others take their children away from them just to help give these kids a chance at a different sort of life. And so as much as we, want, we know that trust is what makes a community work, the uncomfortable truth, maybe the sad truth about all of this, is even in these idealized communities, trust isn't as normative as we'd hope for it to be. Trust isn't always as prevalent as we'd hope for it to be. It's there, but then it's not. And there are other instances where we see it kind of break down. In fact, we see it kind of, if you zoom out a little bit, I think there's an, there's an inverse relationship between laws and trust in a community. The more trust you have in a community, the fewer laws that you need, right? When you know your people, if, if you have a small group that's meeting in your home, you don't constantly have to tell them about, okay, now don't take your shoes off here or don't, you know, or do take your shoes off or, you know, whatever the different rules are. But when you have a whole bunch of strangers or when it grows and when the trust is not as high, all of a sudden you need more rules, um, one could say that that's a little bit of what's maybe happened in America over the last you know, couple hundred years where you didn't need a whole bunch of laws, you didn't need a whole bunch of rules because we all sort of, there was a fabric of community that happened. But the more diverse we become, the more different our, our, our um, backdrops are, the more we bring different frameworks to the table. And so then all of a sudden we say, okay, well, we don't have trust as high so we need more laws and we've got to, cell phone call records and email records and all of that. I saw a joke on social media the other day that said, the government assures us that nobody is listening to your phone calls. It just turned out that nobody is an acronym of a new government agency. (laughs) N.O. No, anyway. (laughs) Trust is what makes a community work and yet it is so often hard to find. A couple weeks ago when New Life was, just for a day, was a Red Cross shelter as the fires were raging through Black Forest. I went in on a Wednesday morning uh, wanting to see who, who were the evacuees that had spent the night at the tent at New Life Church, and, and I decided to swing by the grocery store on the way in, and I picked up a dozen don a couple dozen donuts, and I thought, who doesn't love donuts, you know? So I show up in there, and I'm bringing the donuts, and everybody's kind of like they're not as excited about these donuts as I thought they might be. You know, I just wanted to bring a smile to people's face. And later, one of the Red Cross workers said, Glenn, we didn't say anything, but technically you're not allowed to bring in any outside food to a Red Cross shelter. I said, but but I didn't bake these donuts. Like, doesn't matter. You picked them up. And so here again, because there's not high trust, there had to be more rules. And this is the way it works. We want to know what it would look like to be a community, to be a kind of person that is so trustworthy, so trustworthy that our word is dependable, so trustworthy that our yes truly is yes. And that's what our gospel reading text is about this morning. We're in the middle of a series called Arriving, and it's about the Sermon on the Mount. If you're familiar with this, or maybe if you're not familiar with this, the Sermon on the Mount is Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 in the Gospels. And last week we were a bit out of order uh, for, for a different reason, so we jumped ahead to do Vengeance last week. And now we're kind of skipping back a little bit into uh, verse 34 about, about, about oaths, what Jesus has to say about promises. But just a quick word about this series. We've called it Arriving because this is what we're saying. We're saying that that Jesus went around preaching that the kingdom of God, the rule of God, the reign of God, the empire of heaven is arriving on earth. And Jesus is saying, listen, this is how you are to live in light of it. But it's also arriving because it's Jesus giving us a vision of what it looks like to be truly human. To say, listen, the kind of flourishing life that, that humanity is designed to live is this kind of life. And we in Christ are arriving toward this picture. And so everything Jesus begins to describe, He's saying, look, this is what it looks like to be truly and fully human. You are arriving into this because of Me. And so He talks this morning about truthfulness. Verse 33, a little bit before it, it says, Again, you have heard it was said of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. And some of these other comparisons to the Old Testament, Jesus would say, okay, you've heard it said this, but I'm saying unto you this. And he's not really undoing it, he's just going deeper. But with this one, Jesus is totally doing away with it, isn't it? He's saying, you have said, fulfill your oaths. I'm saying, don't even make oaths. And you may be wondering, well, why? What's, what's the deal with this? Are we saying that we can't take an oath if we're in court or we can't swear into public office? No, no, that's not it. What Jesus is talking about is the way that oaths have become abused. In the oral tradition of the Old Testament, the Mishnah, there was, there's a large section about oaths. And the Jews began to find loopholes in this. So they began to say things like, Okay, listen, if you swear by Jerusalem, then your oath is non-binding. But if you swear toward Jerusalem, then your oath is binding. And you're thinking, Huh? What? What's the difference? Exactly. It's people trying to find these technicalities and these loopholes so that their promises don't actually have to be kept. So that their words don't actually have to mean anything. And Jesus is saying, listen, I want to clear away the clutter. Because you've developed this elaborate system of oaths and promises and when they matter and when they don't matter. And I want to say to you, clear away the noise. Cut to the heart of it. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. In other words, Jesus is saying, be the kind of person whose word is so trustworthy that promises are unnecessary. Be the kind of person who's so trustworthy that promises are unnecessary. Can you imagine this? No, not ever having the need to say, no, 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 I really mean it. I I know it's a figure of speech, but we say this all the time. I say this all the time. Well, to be honest, because prior to this, I have not been. (laughs) Well, frankly... Well, the truth is... I say this all the time. What were you saying before, Glenn? What if we were the kind of person whose word is so trustworthy that promises themselves are unnecessary? We say, well, all right, how do we get there? Well, to be trustworthy, we must be truthful. To be trustworthy, you must be truthful. Think about the truthfulness of our words. Think about the culture that we live in where promises, even oaths, even vows, mean very little. We talked a few weeks ago about lust and divorce and how the link between those two for Jesus was the objectifying of a person, was the using a person up and then discarding them. To the point that uh, that promises and vows don't mean anything anymore because the caveat in the back of our minds is always, unless of course I want something else. And, and, you know, you may be hearing this and thinking, well, that, Glenn, that, that's, you know, those people are terrible. But you know where this often comes to play for us is when we make plans for the weekend. Hey, what are you doing Friday night? Oh, no, I mean, I don't, I don't have any plans. How about you? Well, I'm hosting a little thing at my house. You want to come? Oh, uh, you know, I, uh, there's a whole bunch of stuff I really need to catch up on. I thought you just said you had no plans for the week. Well, I, I mean, I think I'll be there. Yeah, yeah, bro, sh- that sounds like fun. I'll be there. Game night, your house, you got it. And what you really mean is, I'll be there unless I hear a better invitation. And so we have this kind of habit of committing and then backing out. Uh, can I get an amen now? This sort of, yeah, man, I'll be there, totally. And then you know that you can always do this little thing called a text message. You can always send it. To, that's the... That's the Blessing and the curse, right, of our, of our new technology. So we say, well, well, uh, I've committed, but everybody knows that your commitment doesn't really mean anything if you text and say you can't make it. Because, because that's what people do. So I'm coming to small group tonight. I've, this has been the bane of our meal group leaders. Everybody said they were coming, and then nobody came. <laughs> because right before, at five minutes, hey man, just really need to catch up on... West Wing episodes on Netflix. No, <laughs> nobody says why you're really cancelling, you know? And I wonder, like, maybe it would be more truthful, of course, to say, well, I, I, I'd like to come to that, but I'm also keeping my options open for the weekend to see if a better plan opens up. <laughs> but if you just said that, you know, instead of, oh, man, I'd love to, I would really love to be there, I, I, I think we're going to be there. Text message five minutes before, hey bro, sorry man, something came up, hate to miss it. It's not just me, right? What keeps us from being truthful? What is it that keeps us from being truthful? One of the things I think of is selfishness. A Selfishness deep down inside of us kind of keeps us from being truthful because it's selfishness that says, I want what I want. And I want to get what I want to get. And so if I have to kind of work with words a little bit, then it's okay. Now, this is Family Sunday, so all of our kids are here. and I I I might as well confess to you that our kids are not perfect. (gasps) Gasp! And that every once in a while our kids try to play mom against dad or dad against mom. Now, I know none of your kids do. But the spiritual warfare is strong in our home, and so our kids too. No, And so, so, so sometimes, you know, one of them will say, Dad, can I, you know, uh, can I uh, eat this instead of what you made for dinner? This is a frequent one. Anyone have mealtime battles in your home? But Mom cooked this great crockpot. Well, yeah, but, but Mom told me that I could have a peanut butter sandwich instead of this. And I'm thinking, did Mom really say that? Like... I can't imagine that she did. And then, of course, you find out later that, no, she didn't really say that, but they kind of thought that she had said that once, one time before a month ago or something. (laughs) (laughs) You know? The most uncomfortable thing about having kids is when you realize that all of their flaws are some ways a reflection of you. And you think, oh, gosh, I did that. And then you think, I didn't just do that as a kid. I kind of do that now. (laughs) And you realize this whole thing of selfishness, using it, using our words to manipulate, to get our way, that this is kind of what we do. I like the message translation of Matthew 5, 37. Jesus says, just say yes and no. When you manipulate words to get your own way, you go wrong. Think of that. You know, a good question to ask yourself when you're in the middle of working your words to persuade someone is to say Gee, am I just trying to get my way here? I, Dan, you heard me talk about how Dan drags me out of bed running. There were several times the winter where I tried different angles with Dan to say that why we shouldn't go running in the morning. You know. Say, so Dan, the forecast is 8 degrees. says, I've run in, I've run in colder than that, Glenn. You'll be fine. So, well, Dan, I feel a cough coming on. I'm really not sure I can make it this week. Glenn, we're going to run tomorrow morning. Well, but Dan, I've got a busy week, and I just really need my, you know. And then all of a sudden you have to stop and say, am I just working words to try to get my way? Because we can do that. We can do that. That's been happening since the garden. Maybe another example of this is the way that we are on social media. Uh, Particularly think about blogging or, or, or even Facebook posts. We know when we talk about a certain scene or a certain event or current event, we know that we're not telling the whole story. We know that we don't even know the whole story. But we intentionally tell one side of the story because we heard someone on radio or on a certain news channel say, and this is all we want to say because this is the only point we're trying to make. Been there? And so you use words to manipulate because... There's no, there's no need to sort of hear this or hear that. It's just, I just want to get my way. I just want to get my point across. And there's a selfishness at the root of that. But maybe there's something else. Maybe there's another reason we're untruthful. Maybe it's insecurity. Jesus says, But I say to you, don't take an oath in all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is His footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great King. And don't take an oath by your head, for you can't make one hair on your head white or black. Some of you are like, I can make it black. Sure can. Yeah, well, in Jesus' day, you couldn't. What he's saying is, sometimes you you inflate your words as a way of projecting a kind of control over the world that you don't really have. And so you swear by heaven, or you swear by earth, or you swear by Jerusalem. And what that means for us is, you talk bigger than you really are. You begin to inflate your sense of control. Listen, for someone in Jesus' day to swear by heaven, It's Jesus saying, as if you have control over heaven. Swear by earth, as if you have control over earth. Swear by Jerusalem, you don't got control over Jerusalem. I'll swear by the hairs of my head, like you got control over that. My balding spot back here. And Jesus is saying, look, part of your untruthfulness, part of our untruthfulness comes from this illusion of control, this insecurity, this feeling that we have that we're not in control, and so we inflate, and so we exaggerate. If selfishness causes us to manipulate, then insecurity causes us to inflate and exaggerate. And all of a sudden we begin to project an image of ourselves that we want others to see, that we want others to know. Here again, I think social media is a fascinating experiment in all of this. I saw a t-shirt in Target the other day that said, may your life be as awesome as you think it is on Facebook, you know, something like that, as you say it is on Facebook, you know. And uh, it, it's interesting because there is, this, there is this sense where we're all brand managers now, we're all managing the brand of our self and so we know the, the kinds of things to project and this is the way our family is and, and I, 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 we're all kind of caught up in this. And every once in a while, we have to step back and say, God, is this, is this truthfulness or is this me kind of projecting something that I want it to be? Now we're getting to an uncomfortable place because, Glenn, are you saying that part of the root of our untruthfulness is the fact that we don't want to come face to face with our own brokenness? Yeah. I think so. I think why it's so difficult for our yes to be yes and our no to be no is there's this unwillingness to face to look head on at the very monster that's inside of us and to say oh gosh i've there's something ugly inside me and i i haven't wanted to admit that you know our culture is good at making us feel shame but very good at helping us avoid guilt let me say that again very good at helping us feel shame but very good at helping us avoid guilt this is what i mean you can be shamed for eating the wrong kinds of foods or doing this or doing that, but there's no sense of guilt for any of our actions because we don't want anyone to feel responsibility. That sounds like that old-fashioned word, sin. And Glenn, that's, sin is such a damaging concept to self-esteem, and so we don't want to hurt anybody's self-esteem. So we don't talk about sin. We'll just say that, that, that you have your own way of living. And you have your own sort of style of being you. So just be you. And I'll be me. And once in a while I'll shame you if you don't make the choices that I think you should make. But I would never put any guilt on you because you bear no responsibility for you. Now that's quite opposite than the Gospel, isn't it? The Gospel says God's not interested in shaming us. But he's interested in making us come face to face with our guilt. It's quite the opposite. Where God's not interested in in us having bad feelings. He's interested in us looking square on and saying, yes, I am that man. Just like King David when he heard the parable about the man who's stolen sheep and all the stuff. And the prophet Nathan says, David, you are that man. And David says, yeah, yeah, I am. Maybe the first way out of this is to begin with truthfulness before God. Maybe our way out of a habit and a culture and a life that says that, that you can just kind of work your words and work the angles and play, play around, the, cut the corners. Maybe the way through all of this is to begin with truthfulness before God. You know, this is why we do confession every week. Uh, someone has said, you know, different people have commented from time to time, Uh, You know, it seems kind of weird that we do confession every week. I mean, do we really have to be reminded of our our sins? I mean, that's just kind of a downer. I mean, can't we just... Listen, two things. One, we never confess our sins wondering what God's response is going to be. Can I say that, church? We never come confessing our sins wondering what God's going to do. We confess our sins already anticipating the assurance of forgiveness that we have in Christ. That's why confessing our sins should never be a, neg- a, a, a dead-end kind of thing. It never ends in negativity. It only ends in hope and restoration. Because we already anticipate what God's response is going to be. But secondly, if we buy the lie of our culture that you can be you and I can be me, and there isn't really one way to be truly human... Then freedom is allowing you to have whatever you want and freedom is allowing me to have whatever I want. Do you know this is fruitless? Because all of the greats, going back to Aristotle and then on the Christian side, Augustine, all of the greats believed that there is a vision of the good life. There is a view of what it means to be the flourishing human being. And based on that vision of being the flourishing human being, these are the things you must accept. It's kind of like a car. When you, when you, when you uh, say, well, it doesn't matter what, my car, what the car manual says to do with it. I don't care if it says check engine. I don't care if it says change oil. I'm going to do whatever I want. I don't need WD-40. I'm going to use canola oil. I am free. Don't you tell me what I need to do. Don't you put that guilt on me just because I've chosen canola oil and you've chosen not WD-40. Motor oil, I'm a real car guy, real handy. I might as well come out and stop pretending, right? Heck, i take my car in to get the wiper blades changed, you know? Now you can say, you <laughs> this is great, you... You can say, hey, don't put the guilt on me, I'm going to be free, this is my car, I bought it with my money, I'll make my choices, and then you'll say, "All right, tell me how that car drives. The whole Sermon on the Mount is Jesus saying, let me tell you how the God who made you, designed you to be. And the truly free life is the life that runs the way God made us to run. And that means truthfulness from the inside out. That means we confess our guilt. That means we confess our sin. That means we come before God and we say, God, I have not loved you with my whole heart. I have not loved my neighbors as ourselves, as myself. We confess to you what we have done in thought, word, and deed. What we have done, what we have left undone. And we're saying these things. Why do we say this week in and week out? To remind us, to go in the face of what culture says. Hey, buddy. To go in the face of what culture says and to say, you know what? I'm not going to pretend that I'm an autonomous human being. I'm going to remember that I was made by a God who says He wants truth from the inside out. Amen? One of the other ways that we can begin with truthfulness before God is to pray the Psalms. It's to begin to pray the Psalms. You could take a challenge this month. We've been, I've been doing kind of posting it Uh, you know, periodically, but for the month of June, just the psalm that matches that day of the month. So so Psalm 30 today, and then as you get into July, go Psalm 31, and then just keep the count going, 32, and just take one psalm a day and pray it. Do you know why? Because there are things locked up inside of you that you've never thought you could say to God that the psalms will give you permission to say. There are things that are buried inside that you thought, I can't, I can't talk like that. I can't say these things to God because if I do, I won't be a good Christian. And the Psalms say, actually, if you can't begin with truthfulness before God, you'll never have truthfulness before others. Your yes will never be yes and your no will never be no if you can't come and speak truthfully through the Psalms to God. In the wake of the fires, it's been interesting to talk to people and to, and to listen to different responses. We've had someone from our team uh, emailing uh, some of the homes, some of the families within New Life who've lost homes. And last night I read a response that just broke my heart because this lady said, said it's been, it's been really hard for me to um, read things on Facebook where people say we prayed and God spared our home, praise God. And she said it's really hard for me because do people think we didn't pray? She so said we prayed and our home is ashes. And she said Christians keep telling me Don't worry, God's got something better for you. And she said, I don't want something better. I want my husband's grandfather's fishing pole. I want that baby outfit that my son was dedicated in. I want that. And I love, I was so moved reading that last night because I thought this is the kind of honesty that we get affirmed in the Psalms. This is the Psalmist saying, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? The wicked do whatever they want and they get richer. The righteous cry out to you and I suffer all day. It's not wrong to praise God that a home was spared. It is right and good to give thanks in all things. But we must be careful to also affirm that it is also okay, also right and good to bring all of this before God as well. And to say, God, I'm struggling with this. I don't get this. What the heck? Sorry, there are kids here. But praying the Psalms will teach us that. But do you know what happens when we begin to be truthful and honest before God? Do you know what begins to happen? Is you begin to hear God's yes to you. Our New Testament reading this morning was Paul saying that the promises of God are yes and amen. The great theologian Karl Barth said it this way. He said, Jesus is God's yes to all of humanity. Can you imagine that? Do you know that God has said yes to us? Do you know that God has said yes to you? This is why there's so much freedom to be truthful before God and say, God, here is the ugliness, here is the fearfulness, here is the brokenness. I can be truthful before you because what I'm going to hear from God is not a no, get away. But what I'm going to hear before God is yes, come, I've made a way for you to be my my child, even though there is this brokenness inside of you even though you've confessed this guilt. I've taken it on myself. Jesus took on Himself God's great no to evil. God's great no to sin. God's great no to, to lying. God's great no to dishonesty. Jesus took it on Himself so that in Christ we can all hear God's great yes. And here's the miracle about, here's the beauty of God. yes is always yes. God's yes is always yes. He doesn't say yes to you and then say, ah, something better came up. I'm going to work with that guy instead. That person is a better candidate for what I want to do. God's yes to your life is always yes. The whole story of the Old Testament, when you think about God... Promising to work through Abraham's family Saying I'm going to make your family a great nation And then watching that family rebel And be unfaithful to God In the form of the nation of Israel And at the end of the Old Testament Everybody wants to know God Are you going to find something better? Are you going to trade Israel in for a newer model? Are you going to find some, a people Who will be more faithful than Israel? Because certainly we don't deserve you To be faithful to us anymore And you know what God says? He sends Jesus as the seed of Abraham and says, I have not forgotten my promise to save the whole world through Abraham's family. But I'm going to do it so that all of this rests on me and not on you. I am going to be faithful on your behalf because you're not capable of it. That is um, an amazing kind of faithfulness. A God who knows our inability to keep our yes and so He becomes the yes for us. Think of that. Think of that. And then when we hear God, you know what begins to happen? We add our yes to it. We add our yes to it. People say, well, what, is, what does it mean to, to you know, faith? Is, is faith in God kind of us kind of clenching our fists and saying, okay, God, I'm going to will my way through this. No, no, no. Faith in God is adding my yes to the yes that He's already said in Christ. And so we're saying, okay, God, you want to save me? God, God, you want to change me? God, you want to transform me? God, you want to work in me? God, you want to put your Spirit in me and transform me for the inside out? Um, Yes. And so all of a sudden, His yes makes our yes possible. Does that make sense this morning? Something beautiful begins to happen. Truthfulness before God begins to lead to truthfulness with one another. As we learn this truthfulness before God, hearing His yes to us, adding our yes in it and saying, okay God, yes, yes Lord, do it. Yes Lord, have your way. Yes Lord, work. All of a sudden we become the kind of people, the kind of church, the kind of community that has this truthfulness with one another. When I was visiting... Um, were there just briefly that one day when the New Life up north was um, a Red Cross shelter just very briefly before everything got worse. And I was talking with this couple and and just asking them about their home and their area and found out that they were believers as well and, and they said thank you so much uh, to New Life for, for opening up you know this place to be a shelter and again it was less than 24 hours that we were able to do it and, and I just kind of you know reflexively just said well you know that's that's what we're here for. Uh, we, you know, we're here to be a blessing to our city. And she looked at me and she stopped me and she said, Listen, Just lots of churches say that. you guys are actually doing it. And I'm, I'm, I am so thankful to be part of a community where we say, Okay, our words can become trustworthy because we're being changed by a trustworthy God. See, our, our truthfulness before God is what empowers us and changes us and transforms us transforms us, and makes us able to have this truthfulness with one another. Imagine this kind of church where everything that we say and do, people can count on. People can say, no, no, they mean it. When they said, hey, if you need anything, call me. And when they said, you can come stay at our house, they mean it. And story after story after story has come up from this. People saying, look, neighbors helping one another. Friends opening up their homes. And it can continue. This summer we're going to talk, Bobby and I were talking about some initiatives that we can do to continue to serve our city. But even beyond that, the goal is for this kind of trustworthiness and truthfulness to spill out. The table is where we hear God's faithfulness to us, His faithful yes to us. And it begins to work inside of us, changing us, transforming us. It spills out into the world. Amen. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? And